Welcome to the BCMA podcast. Welcome to the second episode of our Rutherford Falls Recap Podcast. My name is Koei and I'm the Indigenous Outreach and Partnership Coordinator for the BCMA. And I'm Leah Patterson, the Learning Resources Coordinator. For today's episode, we're discussing episodes five, six, and seven of Rutherford Falls. So this is your warning now to make sure that you have caught up and watched those episodes before tuning into today's discussions. Uh, Leah and I will be chatting about the museum-related topics discussed on these episodes uh, and we're really excited to get today's episode underway. So we'll start with episode five. Yes, the history fair. There's so much in this episode because I feel like this is where everything starts to get really juicy in the series. We see the community come together to have all these kids compete in the history fair at the museum. The first thing I want to talk about is Terry's land acknowledgement because Mayor Chisenholm doesn't really want to give him the floor for political reasons more so than anything else. I think an important part of Terry doing the land acknowledgement is to recognize the like history of Rutherford Falls, which would have otherwise not been addressed. And I think that is a large part of why landed acknowledgements are important is to recognize not only whose land you're on, but the histories that have happened on that land as well, and that the communities and cultures are still very much alive, despite you know, like settler communities coming in and essentially taking over the area. I think that was the point that Terry really wanted to drive home. And of course, he was just being honest, and it was important to uh, address what had happened. But of course, it took Mayor off guard a little bit, because she hadn't initially, like you said, wanted him to be up there. I wonder with this episode in this moment particularly Nathan organizes and runs the history fair and so I would imagine that he has set out the agenda of the day because he's a very organized person and it's happening in his institution it's Nathan so it makes sense that he didn't put in time for a land acknowledgement from Terry but important note you need to make time for the land acknowledgement at your events that is important that is a lesson that we are all getting on board with and I think we see that across the sector we get a lot of people asking can you point me to some advice for a land acknowledgement or how do I do this sometimes get it wrong and say I, I really messed this up and how do I make it better and I think as a white person providing a land acknowledgement you can only do so much but it should always be honest. It has to be open and it has to be truthful. So if you're skirting around all of the bad things, then you're probably not doing enough research and you're probably not growing. And I think the lack of Indigenous representation or voices in the land acknowledgement was echoed with the high school history projects. There was a lot of topics that were covered and only one of them directly discussed the history between Rutherford Falls and the settlers and the Rutherford family and the Minishanka Nation. So Nathan and Regan are judging these projects and deciding which will be the winner for this year. 
and kind of struggle with one that they really liked, but it was done by a white settler high schooler telling indigenous history in the area. I think he presented himself well-intentioned and was at least from a glance, an indigenous ally. From Regan's perspective, she brings up the point that although he may be an ally, there are some stories uh, and perspectives that shouldn't be told unless you are indigenous. So while she really loved his presentation and agreed with all of the things that he said, she really wished that it was told by Minishanka high schooler and not the settler student. So there's a little bit of conflict between Nathan and Regan in terms of who is being represented by, where there's room for, um, you know, improvement. So we see them struggle with these topics when they're making their decision. And it's, I think it's interesting watching how many people they talk to about the project. There's that scene in the kitchen and they're talking to the restaurant staff and they're like, what do you think? And everyone starts having this very open dialogue. And it, it is a really important conversation in the sector. How much of the story can white people tell from a position of allyship? And where's that line? And it's hard when you're starting out as a non-Indigenous organization, trying to incorporate stories when you don't have a strong relationship to work from to decide where you draw that line. How much can you tell without telling the story for the community? You know, there's that saying, nothing about us without us. That's a tricky topic in our sector. Mm -hmm. I think for non-Indigenous organizations who are wanting to incorporate more Indigenous um, storytelling into their organization, although well-intentioned, I think it's important to create those relationships and build those relationships with the Indigenous communities in their areas before moving forward with any sort of exhibit. Like I said, even if they are well-intentioned, because I do think ultimately it's difficult to share Indigenous stories, histories, and cultures without community input, because ultimately there is going to be areas that are missed, misrepresented, and we really want to promote Indigenous-led storytelling within the sector. Okay, let me ask you this. How about an institution decides there is an Indigenous community in our region, we want to recognize them, so we're going to acknowledge their land, we're going to acknowledge that their land was taken from them. How much can you say with facts that isn't, it's telling a story in a way because it's information about your region and about your town and you're not putting a narrative to it, you're just giving fact. Yeah, I think, like you say, the words facts, I think Mm -hmm. is an easier way to incorporate Indigenous histories. But my mind goes to things like residential schools and wanting to be mindful of potential trauma being brought back up because being factual dates, location, things like that, it will bring things up and that non-Indigenous organizations need to be aware that information or facts that they may not feel are going to inflict trauma or are harmful in any sort of way likely would be for the Indigenous communities. And with relationship building, you would understand that uh, and be sensitive to those feelings. I think a way maybe to acknowledge, like you say, just the land itself, the Indigenous nations that are there and the communities that are still there, and perhaps like the length of time that they've been here before 
the rest of the histories that are on display in the museum even happened. I wonder, or maybe welcome institutions to maybe say that they are actively building relationships, if they are meaningful ones, not to tokenize that work, but to say that there's ongoing work that's happening to build relationships with Indigenous communities to partner with storytelling, whether it's supporting cultural work that they are leading, or if it's inviting them to partner with a non-Indigenous institution in that space. But I think ultimately, non-Indigenous institutions should be aware of potential harms that are brought up by telling uh, Indigenous stories and histories without having that connection with them. Yeah, relationship building takes a lot of time, so institutions have to be very patient. That's Um, actually something that I think is, it's brought up in Rutherford Falls, is that you could argue Nathan is bringing up the history and discussing the history of the land, but without the relationship with the Manishanka Nation, he is unaware or perhaps blind to the real relationships that happened and how they were more toxic than or problematic than he has been told or understands. So while he may be good intention by bringing out the quote unquote facts of the area, it's not the reality of what happened. And he would have known otherwise if he was open to connecting with the Minshanka Nation and hearing what really happened. Yeah. And I think back to that episode with the chew stick and he tells that story from the Rutherford perspective. And there's a line there because it doesn't feel good to watch him do that, especially with Terry being the audience at the time. But that object, that's his interpretation from his white perspective with no Indigenous storytelling. It's one of those gut things. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more opportunities for, for us as individuals, but also institutions to take the time and create opportunities for listening and learning from Indigenous communities because those who are willing to share that information in order to avoid misrepresenting or ignoring the history that has happened in certain areas. Mm-hmm. I think the conversation about taking time to listen and understanding the stories that are from Indigenous communities leads into episode six when Regan unpacks her feelings towards what should be in the cultural center and the items that she ultimately receives from the community. And when she takes time to listen to the stories behind these items, they are culturally significant to the community and there are great stories and meanings behind it. And that storytelling is not just about the past, but it's also about the present. And I think that was really interesting to watch in this episode. Yeah, I love the wide variety of donations that come to the cultural center. And I love that the two casino attendants that have been picking on her and battling with her a little bit socially are the ones that make it happen. I just, that made my heart a little bit warm. I I can only imagine that when you get a piece of a broken blender and old VHS tapes, you just think, why am I getting this junk? And I think that's every uh, museum person's, I want to say responsibility, but that feels very heavy for what is supposed to be this opportunity to see these stories and tell a bigger story. The blender has this story because it was this blender that was used at the Standing Rock protests and it made a smoothie for Cheyenne Woodley, which is just a weird side note. 
But this protest story is a bigger story. It's a, the blender plays a small piece of a bigger story. The movie, the VHS tape where a community member played an extra in this movie and met this, this superstar actor. And it's the bigger stories like with the VHS tape because indigenous people played these small backup roles in these big movies where white actors pretended to be indigenous. And now we are watching this TV show with half an indigenous writing room and indigenous actors. I thought that was a funny nod to what we were actually watching on the screen and how things have changed. But these, yeah, these little bits of everyday life have this huge story to tell. And shouldn't every museum be telling contemporary stories or collecting contemporary objects to tell these stories in the future. We as museum community have done a bad job of expanding Indigenous collecting into the contemporary time. There are so many Indigenous artists and creators and traditional artists who would likely be very happy to have one of their works purchased for a contemporary collection. There are so many things we could be doing with contemporary collecting with Indigenous communities and telling these interesting stories that are now and not rooted in history of where we've been, but are where we're going. Yeah, and I'd add that recognizing contemporary stories is a way to help educate non-Indigenous folks on the work that's being done by Indigenous communities to this day. And I would argue if you're exhibiting contemporary Indigenous works and collections, you also are opening a door to talk about really tricky subjects that play into that education role. Like you said, your role is to educate, then you should be educating about land issues. You should be educating about the fact that modern treaties are still in the works. You should be educating about the fact that all of these contemporary issues are Indigenous issues that we could all be learning more about. Don't play it safe with ambiguous project from the History Fair and episode before. Take some risks, use a contemporary collection, and educate people. I think that museums have such a great opportunity or in a great position to do that and really could be doing more of that. And I would add that, of course, all of this is done with the full consent of the Indigenous communities that you're gathering these contemporary items from, of course. Yes. And this kind of leads into episode seven and the fact that this old agreement between the Minnesota and the Rutherfords is being used as a way to um, not honor the arrangement that was made in that it's federal law and there's a statute of limitations. And your comment made me think that using contemporary items may be a great opportunity for non-Indigenous institutions to have a look at their policies and see if there's room for making sure repatriation is on there, whether it be in the coming years or decades from now, making sure that it's very clear who has ownership and to allow Indigenous communities to take out the items that they've donated or whatever it may be because in episode seven, it's they're using the treaty as a way to try to get out of this agreement with the Minnesota nation. And so I think that's a topic that we're talking about in the museum industry right now is, are there ways to be more flexible and modernize structures and policies within institutions? Mm, I think that the colonial focus on creating policy 
really limits our ability to build trust and be flexible in ways that will benefit everyone. And we all get stuck in thinking that uh, policy is policy. And if it doesn't fit the policy, then it's not going to happen. You know, you see that with a lot of large institutions who have these repatriation policies that have a very thin line of what they're willing to accept and not accept in terms of repatriation claims. And you're not going to make any friends doing that. No. And I think moving ahead in this episode, when Regan discovers all of those Minnesota cultural items that are at Nathan's aunt's house, you see the unfortunate position that she's in and that there's no real framework or opportunity for her to repatriate those items. I think that like, this, the sad realization in this episode and in Regan finding the collection at Aunt Joan's house is that there are so many private collections. Private collections are so tricky because they probably will never be known to Indigenous communities until they're donated. That's just a really sad reality to think about is how many pieces of cultural material from communities are in private collections or stashed in garages and just not going to be returned until... A long time from now and maybe they won't ever be returned because at that point who's going to know the story of where it came from or what it is and if you don't know that as a museum it is hard to reach out to find the rightful place where it belongs and it's, it's a lot of work it's a lot of uphill work that museums have will have to do with collections that they don't have information for you still have to be working on that and this um, of course falls on the heels of Nathan realizing that the museum and his home is potentially going to be taken away from him because Terry and the rest of the Minnesota nation has made a deal with Rutherford Inc. to essentially reclaim a large portion of Rutherford Falls that was in their territory and arguably still is. And so you see Nathan ironically talking about how life is unfair, his land and home is being taken from him, there must be some legal framework that would protect him from this happening and so Regan of course is faced with finding these cultural items at Nathan's aunt's house and is trying to explain to Nathan that what essentially you could say is happening to him now has happened to indigenous communities since settlers came to this land. Yeah there were some interesting parallels between Nathan's thoughts on how unfair things were and what's happened to Indigenous communities in North America with colonialism, the house and the land being one. And then Nathan's speech that Rutherford Inc. makes him make, where he backs out of any claims to relations with Rutherford Inc. and has to separate himself. I was wondering if there was a parallel there between Indigenous communities being forced to remove themselves from their community and their culture to get voting rights, to be able to have professions outside of what the Indian Act told them they could do. There were a lot of these parallels I felt in this episode and to have Nathan up in arms about them and be upset about them. I think it was a moment of reflection to think about what Indigenous communities have had to face in colonialism. And I would add with Nathan's home, you know, a part of this land deal, he feels like this house is a part of his family's history, his culture essentially. And so that by taking his home potentially, that would take a bit of his culture and who he, who he is and his identity. And 
I really love when Regan said, why is your history more important than mine? Because like we've said, this has been happening to Indigenous communities since the beginning of Settlers. Yeah. I want to take a quick moment to say that there are a lot of bigger topics in Rutherford Falls that I see and I can't address as a white person. They're outside of my experiences and my identity. And I think that if you are a person who's watching this, who is noticing things and you want to explore those topics further, you should 100% do some research. These episodes have made me look at topics that I would not typically have explored through my own experiences, but that this television show has opened the door for me to look into. I can check my privilege a little here and recognize that there are experiences in this TV show that I have never had and will never have to deal with. I would also add that with all that being said, I think it's important to recognize, I know for myself, that although I'm speaking about Indigenous communities and their struggles, their histories, in my position, I don't understand the emotional, physical, spiritual harm of those things and would never claim to understand what that is like. So although I'm providing my essentially is my own insight and I don't claim to know what Indigenous communities have gone through, what they're looking for. And I think part of looking and doing research based on these other topics that are outside of what we've discussed, I think it's important to also do the research about the Indigenous communities, both of your you know, immediate region, but also across the country and see where there are opportunities for you to build relationships and support the work that they're doing. Yeah, it's, um, it's an eye-opening television show with a lot of humor. Something that I want to add that I learned about the show this week is that theme song was a collaboration between Ed Helms, Lucy Schwartz, David Schwartz, and The Hallucination, which is formerly A Tribe Called Red. I didn't know that. I didn't catch that in the credits. So neat. So great to see them in this. Yeah, there's a YouTube video out there uh, called Behind the Music for Rutherford Falls. And it's like an interview with them all. It's really great. If you want to nerd out on some Rutherford Falls extras, it's fantastic. That brings us to the end of the second episode of our Brother Falls recap podcast. Stay tuned. We have the third and final episode coming soon, and that'll be on episodes eight through 10. A lot more to chat about, and we're really looking forward to it. As always, feel free to connect with us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, and chat about any of the topics that we were talking about this afternoon. Looking forward to the next episode. Yeah, thanks everyone. Bye.